you know, we, we have abandoned this idea of needing public services and, and public institutions to provide them. This feed are, are what is the, the nonprofit that just dissolved because of the federal corruption. Oh, feeding our future, I think. Right. I mean, that's an unimaginable amount of money that was stolen. Like, how did how did all that money ever get allocated to feeding children? I thought we neglected children in this country. What's going on? How did anyone steal that much money? It's, well, and and I guess my question is, why isn't that money going to public institutions that feed our kids every day? Right. I mean, we've we've and and because you know SEIU two eighty four, the food service workers in Minneapolis, who I said they make less money than we do. They're they're about to vote to go on strike. I think. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now. This is the Wedge Live podcast. I'm your host, John Edwards. And today my guest is Sean Layden, president of the Educational Support Professionals chapter of the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers. Thank you, Sean, for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. You've had a busy day, right? I had a hard time scheduling you. You demanded a weekend recording because you, I was surprised to learn you were like all day, every day in mediation, right? Uh, Yes. On days that we're mediating, we are all day mediating and then also trying to run our contract campaign outside of that. So we got a lot going on. How does mediation go? Because I was once in mediation when I had to sue Carol Becker when she tried to steal the name Wedge Live and start her own podcast with the name that I own. And we weren't in the same room like a lawyer would go between. Uh, How does mediation work uh, when you're representing a teacher's union? Those negotiate, how does that like logistically work? You facing off across a table? Well, um, it depends. And of course, COVID makes it a little bit different. So we've been virtual so far. Um, and similar to mediation, it sounds like that you were doing with uh, Carol. Uh, you're in a couple of different rooms. You have a mediator who shuttles back and forth. Uh, and then we do get together every once in a while to try and, um, you know, reach a deal. So talk through points of contention, things that are issues, um, try to find clarity, those sorts of things. So it's a little bit of both, um, which is our group in uh one space, the district in another space, and then at times we'll come together and then we go back and huddle with our team and say, okay, what do we think about this proposal? What do we think about that point? What questions do we have? What do we need them to understand? So it's uh, it, it can be a slow process, but it's uh, an intentional one and one designed to at least get understanding between the two parties. I know you can't give me details, but like... Can you tell me you f- whether you feel like you're making progress? Do you feel like it's a fruitful situation? Or are we just waiting out the time to to get to when a strike would actually happen? Are things like bound to go until like a deadline? Or do you feel like uh, every day feels fruitful? Well, um, obviously, I have a dog in this fight. So what I would say is if our partners across the table were 
uh, maybe a little more productive, we, we could be moving along a little quicker. Um, it's not helpful when we know what the defined issues are and uh, the district team comes with, for example, take backs out of a contract when they already know that uh, our demands are clear on the table and, and we've been very clear about what those priorities are and and to come in and say, actually, we want to take things out of your contract. Um, that That's not moving us quickly to settlement. They want to take things you already have. They want to take things you already have away. Uh, yes. Yeah. We were in mediation and, um, you know, that's part of what we've seen and that's not great. Um, can't get into specifics about that, but uh, I will say for our team and um, for our teachers and ESPs who are, um, you know, sitting uh, in mediation together, I mean, we want a settlement, right? No one wants to go on strike. No one wants that to occur. Um, it's, it is what it is. We, we, we know, you know, what, what a strike is and folks don't want to do that. Right. And I'll speak, you know, my, you would introduce me as the ESP president. Um, our chapter represents about 1200 uh, educators throughout the district, hourly employees, folks who do things like small literacy groups, small numeracy groups, uh, translation, transportation, uh, all sorts of things. We are uh, not a group of people who make a lot of money. Right. Our demands are to start at thirty five thousand dollars a year right now. A special ed assistance, for uh, for example, started about twenty four thousand dollars a year. Um, and so our demands amongst folks who don't make a lot of money are to you know raise our wages. Well, it, you know, it's hard for folks who don't make a lot of money to be on strike and not get paid. Right. But we just had a strike vote where 98% of our members on 93% turnout said, we're willing to go on strike because it's so bad, something has to change. And, you know, for Minneapolis right now, I mean, let's look at, at the wider landscape and take a step back. You had the bus drivers who voted to strike prior to the new year. You've got ESPs who have voted to strike. You've got teachers who have voted to strike. And now you have SEIU food service workers who are taking a vote uh, next week, who I would imagine would also vote to strike because those folks, as little as we make, those food service workers are even making less than we do. And so something is fundamentally wrong in the district right now with how we're prioritizing how to use our resources. And I think that is um, beyond the material issues that are on the table. That's a big part of, of what this is about as well. So you've talked a little bit about what uh, educational support professionals are. Can you talk a little more in depth about what they do on a daily basis, who they are? Uh, are you, do you come, you come from that field, right? That's how you become the president of the ESP uh, chapter, right? That's right. That's right. I was a, a special ed assistant in early childhood, um, special education for a, a few years, and then also was a classroom assistant last at Jefferson, now Ella Baker. Um, in the Wedge neighborhood uh, yeah. uh, for a couple of years before being elected. And so, you know, our folks do a, a variety of things. So we are a majority women, a majority folks of color. We're non-licensed, although a lot of our folks do have um, licenses, uh, certifications, various degrees. There are about 1,200 of us. Uh, there's a really good Sahan Journal piece that um, came out about our members and, and can kind of, uh, folks want to go check that out, it would be timely. And and say a little bit more. But um, yeah, I mean, we are folks who uh, sometimes are the first people to see kids in the day because we ride the bus. 
Uh, we're the last people to see kids off on the bus. Um, we do before and after school. Uh, we have Minneapolis Kids Program we represent, so that's childcare. Um, there's a wide variety, you know, and, and I think about like a member like Sayida Omar, who's featured in that Sahan Journal um, article, who um, a Somali woman who worked as a family liaison for years at um, Ella Baker and, and as such worked with families who were new arrivals, um, navigating the school system, um, how to advocate for kids, how, how to um, get what you need from the school system, how to make sure that, you know, how to register, how to, you know, things come up in schools, how do we handle that? Um, not everybody has a right the ability to navigate a big bureaucracy or or extra time or um, and so oftentimes our members end up um, you know helping to fulfill those roles too. So if you think about um, all of the things that a, a teacher at the front of the classroom is dealing with, uh, and and one of the reasons our our partners in the MFT are asking for smaller class sizes, right? You've got a classroom with uh, thirty six kids in a high school chemistry class. Uh, you know, in your teacher, you've got a very difficult subject matter. You might have an ESP who's in a classroom who's assigned to help particular students, um, you know, with concepts, with, uh, you know, note taking, with different study skills, um, adapting lessons as well, and, and helping to, um, you know, provide some outlines or being able to answer some questions more right away than a teacher who might have to keep things moving along. Um, you know, I, myself, when I was a, a, a classroom assistant, one of the things that, um, you know, we would do is uh, lead small literacy groups, right? So uh, kids today in classrooms, they move station to station for reading time, for example, and, and licensed teacher spends a lot of time with students or as much as they can. Um, and then maybe another station is a small reading group and, and our folks are helping to lead that. And um, you know, helping to teach those fundamental skills of literacy and, uh, or just providing, you know, another, another person who's able to provide some guidance or support. I've been reading the Zahan Journal's coverage. And so there's a cultural component to this too, and racial, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of women, a lot of women of color, some immigrants. And so they will take on things like outreach to parents uh, or translation uh, it's it's also become a topic lately about how important it is for kids to have teachers of color, uh, and so the ESP ESPs are a more diverse group than Minneapolis teachers as a whole. So it it brings a a person of color, a woman of color, into the classroom that maybe these kids aren't getting with their teacher. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a critical experience. And, and you know, also having adults in the building who um, are able to provide all sorts of different support. Londell French, uh, folks may know, uh, was on the park board recently, um, was a longtime career ESP at South High and, um, you know, talks about the impact that he had working with high school students and, and you know, being a, a someone who's able to you know provide life advice and uh, someone to listen to and, uh students when they're having a hard time or just, you know, looking, looking to figure things out. So there's a lot that our folks do. we like to say we make school happen. Um, you think about all the things um, that, that have to occur in a building. Um, ESPs, we hear all, all the time from our administrators, from our teachers, from parents and guardians, you know, we couldn't do this without you. We, we need you to make school happen. I was at a site at Emerson um, talking with a teacher who's a 
uh, EL teacher, and, and she said, well, you know, when I'm out, we have a sub plan, we can, we can make it work. When our ESP is out, we, we're having a hard time figuring it out because of all of the things that our folks do and the fact that our folks don't have substitutes. So if our folks are out because they're sick or they have a family emergency, um, you know, there's no one there to, to step in. Is it a potential pipeline, uh, educational support professionals, to diversifying teachers, the teacher core, because it's, it's so many uh, people of color? Yeah, you know, it is. It is. And it's certainly an opportunity. And throughout the years, the district has partnered with various colleges and universities to um, come up with programs to do just that. Um, I think what oftentimes people um, want to kind of jump to that and uh, what we also want to keep focus on is that while there are certainly uh, a wealth of folks who are interested and who are on that track and uh, in, in would like to move into the licensed uh, group, at the end of the day, we still need 1,500, 1,300 ESPs in our schools to do the work that, that we're doing right now. And so that's why we're saying we need to get paid a living wage because you can't have high turnover and high vacancies in these critical roles. We've identified the needs that students have. We've said we need folks to do this work. And our district has gotten ourselves into a situation where we can't keep people in this. We started the school year with over 200 vacancies. Um, that's a Han Journal uh, article cited, I think, 367 current vacancies. We got 1,200 people in our unit. I mean, that's a huge percentage of vacancies, and you imagine all the stories that you read about of the great work that our folks do, and then you think, "Wow, you need 367 more of these people." Right? Yeah, the number was 370, and it's 22 percent of the total. And so we we shouldn't think of them as like teacher trainees. Like, oh, you're you'll be in this job for a little while. Doesn't matter if we treat you or pay you like a professional. Yeah. We should not I mean, think of it as, we should think of it as a career. It's a potential career for people that they should be able to support their families. Yeah, absolutely. Just like, you know, some teachers happen to go on to be principals, but we need teachers, right? We're not, right. all of our teachers can't go be principals. So, um, you know, same thing for our folks, right? Like we need this to be a sustained career because uh, our kids need consistency, right? Um, you know, we do really relational work. Uh, a lot of our folks are engaged in, you know, getting kids back to class, figuring out what's going on, if kids are having a tough time or need some time to, to you know, decompress. I mean, and to be able to do that and do that well, you've got to build a relationship. You have to have trust with young people. And, uh, you know, the, the rate of turnover that we have uh, in, our, in our school system is alarming. And, and we're making the argument that if you want to increase outcomes, you got to invest in, in our critical group who's providing these incredible, uh, you know, supports to our students. So the teachers and the ESP, ESPs want, they want more pay. Can you run through some of the briefly, like some of the other uh, asks from the union? Yeah. So our ESP um, contract really is focusing in on living wages. We're saying $35,000 a year to start. Uh, and, and it goes up, um, you know, according to experience. Uh, we're also saying that we should not pay the same for health insurance as administrators making $125,000 a year when our folks, the uh, majority of whom are making well under $35,000 a year. Um, so that's got to change. 
Uh, our teacher colleagues are demanding lower class sizes, uh, more mental health supports, lower caseloads for, uh, for example, social workers, counselors, school psychologists, our special ed uh, educators, teachers, um, to have more support so our kids get uh, more time with licensed people. So those are really critical parts of, um, of what we're calling our safe and stable schools agenda. When I read about the disparities between like Minneapolis and St. Paul teachers and the demands of ESPs, it's like to, to use an example, the Minneapolis-St. Paul disparity is like $14,000 between the, the two groups of teachers. And St. Paul is also going through this strike authorization, uh, potentially striking too. And so it seems like these are big needs that have existed for a long time. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, for a long time. So uh, my question, like, why now? Why why did something happen? Like, we have to strike now. Why didn't we strike five years ago, 10 years ago? Because these are not new problems. Yeah, I think that's a good question and gets at the heart of the matter. Um, so why now? So we are um, in the middle of a, a global pandemic still. Uh, if you look at the difference between St. Paul and Minneapolis, St. Paul's school board and superintendent entered into what's called a memorandum of agreement with the St. Paul Federation of Educators to address how, how we operate during COVID. Um, those are terms and conditions, right? And, and our employer is obligated to uh, negotiate with the exclusive representative, our union, uh, over terms and conditions when they change. Our district in Minneapolis took a, a different approach than in St. Paul and said, we're not going to negotiate with you. We're not going to enter into a memorandum of agreement over these things. Um, and, and so it got to the point where we had to file an unfair labor practice against the Minneapolis public schools, received an initial favorable offering that's on hold while we're bargaining. Um, I think that's an example. We had to sue and received a, a temporary restraining order against the district for its uh, failure to correctly implement the governor's executive orders as a, they... Um, uh, as they pertain to work from home accommodations. Um, so these are the sorts of things that Minneapolis has been up to for the last couple of years during the pandemic. And I think when you talk about um, class size or caseload or ESP wages, um, what we're also seeing in, in Minneapolis is that uh, the administration has really minimized any role uh, that different constituencies play in decision making and has really monopolized that power of how we make decisions in the district. And that's, I think, the, one of the troubling parts that we're seeing here. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why now, I think folks have had enough. I think between the um, pandemic and just the continuing, you know, we received uh, just in the last payment from the federal government for COVID mitigation, right, $159 million. Well, maybe about a month ago or so, our members received one KN95 mask from the district and were told if they wanted to reuse it, put it in a brown bag overnight. So the, those are the sorts of things. Yep. How long those is it supposed the, to last? Those are the sorts of decisions that are getting made. And that is what has, has put folks past their breaking point. And I think that's really what you see. You know, you, you don't get 98, 97% of folks voting to strike unless things are in a pretty desperate uh, situation. And even in, um, you know, Chicago, uh, L.A., St. Paul, those, um, 
those cities that have had large urban school districts go on strike have not seen numbers like that. These are, in terms of, to put this into some perspective, these are historically high yes votes for striking. And, and it's a reflection of how the district has managed its human resources. I mean, MPS, John, is going to have four strike votes in one cycle of contracts. That's unprecedented. Well, the last person to get 98% of the vote, I think, was Saddam Hussein. <laughs> uh, uh, please excuse my joke. Uh, so is there anything about the strike or what the unions are asking for that you think is not breaking through in the news coverage? What do we, what do we do? What do we not know about what's going on? That's that you think is important context. Well, I think, you know, what we've said is this time it's different, right? I think to your point earlier, um, there is a, a, a clarity amongst our members that, you know, we can't do this anymore and something big has to change. And, and I'm not, uh, I would say that that is really a big part of the story. Um, I know that the news likes to talk about process and, you know, authorizations have happened or these are the top line points. Uh, I think it's really a feeling amongst our membership that if we don't change how we operate in the schools and how we make decisions and, and how we fund based on the resources we have, uh, you know, we're, we're afraid that we're not going to have a district, right? We've seen declining enrollment and the district just, you know, put out in its last meeting, did a big presentation talking about um, its finances. The point that we're trying to make is that it's not only about how much money you have, but it's how you choose to use that money. And, and the decisions that our district has made over a long period of time has gotten us to this point. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that you would want to be in a situation where you hold all the power, make all the choices when there aren't good options available. I mean, think about the difficult decisions in the pandemic. Um, you know, there aren't great choices. So why would you want to be on the hook for the consequences of those decisions all by yourself when you're making them? And, and I think what our members have, and, and have been saying is we're not running our schools like a democratic institution. We're running our schools like a business. And, and you know, depending on how back and how far and wide you want to go, John, you know, we could talk about historically how Minneapolis public schools has um, been the target of, of a significant effort to, um, you know, implement various reforms, uh, you know, McKinsey. Uh, donated a consultant some time ago to rewrite Minneapolis's strategic plan. You've got, um, you know, a time when when board voted to close schools, co-locate co charter schools, um, you know, all sorts of things that really undermine uh, public schools in Minneapolis. We can go uh, back as far as far as you want because we're only 22 minutes in. <laughs> so we could talk about the comprehensive district design, right? That's what you're referring to? The Well, no, I'm actually going back a little further than oh. that. Um, you know, probably about 10, 15 years or so about how we, we started to operate. And, and there's a national move, right? There's Democrats for education reform, students for education reform, all these various um, groups started popping up, oftentimes funded by folks like Michael Bloomberg or Arthur Rock, who runs Rocket Ship Academies, right? These um, charter schools where you put 100, 100 plus kids in a room with a computer and one teacher, and that's the future of education, right? We had a superintendent, uh, an interim superintendent, who wanted to um, 
have student-based allocation of funds that would have closed North High, no questions asked, right? Would have closed schools like Pratt or small schools that, um, you know, are, are important institutions in our community who we want to support and, and we believe we need to invest in. So there was a, a way of thinking for those who, who ran our schools um, that you needed competition, that you needed choice, that you need those sorts of things. And, and that has really, uh, and coupled with our state, you know, Minnesota has very radical school choice laws. The choice of yours um, basically uh, enables uh, white flight, enables folks to kind of move out, right? And so when you see those first ring suburbs start to diversify, the exurbs start seeing kids moving, you know, and, and that school choice framework really, um, you know, in a lot of ways undermines where we're at. And we have historically low levels of spending on school. Right. So about 20 years or so ago or around the Polanyi administration, um, the Chamber of Commerce asked for something called the cost to government index. And so we spend less as a percentage of our state's economy on schools um, than we did when Tim Polanyi was around. And so you've got politicians who will say, oh, we've never spent more on schools. Well, you know, that's because there's something called inflation. Right. right. Like the number is always going to get bigger if you increase it by 0.5%, it's bigger. But if we look at the percentage of our state's economy going to schools, we've seen that go down. And and we've, we have not recovered. The state spends less on schools now than it did in 2003. And, and that's a big part of this as well. So there's a lot that's at play here. Now, to bring it back to the situation we're in, why now? Um, I think we still have folks who, who are are um, you know, making decisions based on those models, right? Top down, we, we don't share decision-making power with, with educators or families. And, you know, you mentioned the CDD, there's a, you know, a lot of stuff you can talk about about that. But I think what is uh, true about that is that folks did not feel like uh, they were listened to. And again, if you're going to make big decisions and folks don't feel like they're part of the process, you're going to own all the consequences. How big of a problem do you feel like charter schools have played in in the situation? There's obviously like the state is not sending money to and it's not funding public education like it used to, but also like that that school choice issue. How big of a role do you feel like that plays? Yeah, I think it plays a big role. I mean, it's important to talk about in this. So let's take an example of special education. Um, you know, if you're a parent, if you're a guardian uh, in Minneapolis, uh, and your student qualifies to receive special education services, um, you may go to the Minneapolis public schools and may insist on, on more support. Um, if you're not able to get it, uh, maybe you'll enroll in a charter school. Well, uh, the way that our, our state has set up our school choice laws, um, uh, depending on the, uh, a couple of factors, um, that charter school bills back the cost of providing those special education services to the home district. So if you live in Minneapolis, your home district is the Minneapolis public schools. If you enroll to go somewhere else, either charter school or a suburban district or wherever, um, they can bill back the cost of providing those services. And so, you know, I've talked to the Minneapolis public schools lobbyist about this and, you know, they've got outrageous stories, right? The bill back, for a while, and it may still be uh, this case, the bill back was growing by a million dollars a year of what various other schools and districts were charging 
the Minneapolis public schools because of the way we've set up school choice in Minnesota. So when you hear about, you know, the special education cross subsidy, right? The, the, the difference between what we fund special education services at and, and what actually we need to do, right? There's a gap there. Um, but we have a broken system that says, if you're, you know, if you're not going to your home district, those schools have a financial incentive to provide maybe a one-to-one -one special education assistant. Where in the Minneapolis public schools, you might have gotten a portion of that because there aren't enough funds in the district. So there's a there's a really problematic incentive in the way that we um, have set up our school choice system, and that's just one example, right? Uh, we also see an alarming trend in, in hyper segregation. Uh, we uh, you know are seeing very segregated schools, um, and that, in my opinion, is going backwards. I think. That's, you know, in a multiracial democracy, um, I don't think it's good for us to have uh, extremely segregated schools by race, um, it, which is another issue. So I think school choice is something that Minnesota, Minnesotans don't like to admit when we're wrong, I think, is, you know, um, and, and we've had this experiment for about uh, 30 years or so. Uh, and, and I think it's time to evaluate where we're at. Where we're at. Um, and we've come a long way from where we originated. Remember that the, at the advent of those charter schools, they were supposed to be governed by, by teachers. They had to have a majority of teachers on their school board because they're not democratically elected by the public, but they receive public dollars. So the original deal was, well, these will be places of, you know, where teachers will run the schools. Well, that law changed. And now we have all sorts of folks who are, who are in, the, in the charter game. So to talk about the the unfunded mandate, the cross subsidy you were talking about when it comes to special education, English learning services, uh, it's statewide. It's over nine hundred million dollars. That that gap in what the state and federal government like you must provide these services. So not only has the state not kept up with how much they have historically funded schools at. Uh, they're not funding these required services uh, anywhere in the state. Uh, and there's an $8 billion statewide surplus we've got, which could be used to fill this budget hole. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a matter of priorities. And, and um, you know, for a long time, we, you know, and, and I hope that, uh, you know, we were able to DFLers win elections in, in the fall and, um you know, but even when we've had the trifecta, we haven't seen enough money go into into schools to to keep up. I think folks don't realize just how far behind we've fallen, um, and I think that's really really a problem. It it you know the austerity mindset that we live in, and you know, I mean, take it in any issue, housing, right? We don't we don't build public housing anymore. We provide vouchers to landlords, so we're not building up our stock and increasing how much housing we have. We just sort of subsidize landlords who are willing to take Section 8. And so, um, you know, this is all over in different um, sectors, right? We have this austerity mindset. There's not enough. We're, every time there's a surplus, you know, you get this gimmick from folks in the legislature um, that we got to cut taxes, right? Because we're a high tax state. It's just really a, a stale argument, I'd say. But I mean, that's part of the problem is that we, we you know, we, we have abandoned this idea of needing 
public services and, and public institutions provide them. This feed are, are what is the, the nonprofit that just dissolved because of the federal corruption. Oh, feeding our future, I think. Right. I mean, that's an unimaginable amount of money that was stolen. Like how did, how did all that money ever get allocated to feeding children? I thought we neglected children in this country. What's going on? How did anyone steal that much money? It's, well, and, and I guess my question is why isn't that money going to public institutions that feed our kids every day? Right. I mean, we've, we've, and, and because, you know, SEIU 284, the food service workers in Minneapolis, who I said, they make less money than we do. They're, they're about to vote to go on strike, I think. Um, you know, they're paid poverty wages. And yet we got, you know, nonprofits out here with $200 million contracts. And, you know, we got all sorts of shenanigans going on. So I guess I, I think we need, a, you know, to really, right, we, we're, we're living in the aftermath of the era of big governments over, right? People like Bill Clinton and Al Gore who told us, you know, that the way to win elections again is to, is to cut government smarter than people who just wanted to kill it off. And I think, uh, you know, we've got to return to that New Deal coalition that says we're all in this together and we fund public services at the robust levels we need because, you know, no, who, who can afford their own roads? Who can afford their own hospitals? Who can afford their own schools? We can do it together. Uh, and, and we can certainly do it together when those who are making the most pay their fair share. So when the district says granting union requests for higher pay and staffing, here's what Graf said. He said it's not fiscally feasible. I mean, it's it's easy to look at the numbers and say, well, the money's not there. And you can go back and say, well, you made all these poor decisions and the state should be funding the schools. But what do you say in the moment to the idea that the money's not there? This is not fiscally responsible. Yeah, you know, I think um, there are a lot of ways to spend $650 million or whatever our operating budget is, right? And I guess what I would say is the way that district leadership has been spending it to date has gotten us to this crisis point. So I think there, you know, we're, we're sitting on a, you know, let's take this COVID relief money, for example. The district wants to hire HR consultants and more data scientists with a part of it. Um, there's a disagreement of how we spend that money. Um, you know, there, there aren't a huge number of positions, but I think it's illustrative of, of the decisions that we make. So, I, you know, I'm not going to argue that our schools are, have enough money. That's not what I'm saying. But how we use the money that we have uh, is the question. And to come back to my earlier point, which is to date, the dis district decision makers have said, we're going to make all the choices. We're going to make all the decisions. Um, and I think, you know, a uh, good example of that is around, uh, you know, how we staff our schools. Do we want lower class sizes? So classroom teachers have more time to give to, to students for individual attention, or do we want to um, staff interventionists? who, uh, or, or other individuals, uh, you know, who do various work. I mean, there's various choices that we make with the money that we have. And I think that is lost in this sort of, I think, what was it? The Southwest Voices or something came out with this, um, article and, and, you know, I think you could say we spend this, the union wants to spend all this. And so where does this come from? I think our point is we spend all of this. Do we need to spend all this the way we're spending it right now? Right. Uh, and I think there's real disagreement about that. So here's here's another stat from that Southwest uh, Voices article. 
40% decline in enrollment over the last 20 years at a time when Minneapolis population has grown by like 50,000 people, like 10%. Uh, what, what's your take on why that has happened? That 40% decline in uh, enrollment in Minneapolis public schools. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is, is um, folks are having fewer kids, right? Um, I think that's a part of it, but I, I think, you know, Certainly school choice is a part of that as well. Um, you know, we have a, a system of education innovation in our state that is based on the ideology of Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman, right? If you're dissatisfied with your public schools, you just choose a different one. You have a choice to leave. And, and I think the, the false promise of that is that we actually don't have to fix what the problem is. We just tell people to sort of balance between places and, and find what, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, my wife is a, a teacher in the schools. She's at Whittier. She's a Spanish teacher there. Um, she was talking to a family who uh, was talking about a, a relatively well-known charter chain. Um, and, and this woman who is very honest and earnest just said, well, you know, I, I have a child who receives special education services and my other kids go to this charter chain, but they don't take kids who need special education services. So this, my child is here at Whittier. Um, well, that, that is illegal, right? Uh, charter schools are public schools. They're open to everybody. Uh, but what is it about how we've created a, a culture and understanding around school choice that that, that would be the situation? Um, so I think it, it's highly problematic, the, the system that we've set up. And I think it's set up really to say, and, and we see this various iterations of this oftentimes in education, which is the solution to our problem is not taxing the wealthiest corporations in the history of humanity, right? And the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. It's this other thing, right? Um, you know, the problem with our, our education system isn't that it's underfunded or that, um, you know, kids don't have housing or that families don't have economic opportunity. Uh, it's that, you know, we have seniority-based layoff, or, you know, we don't have enough school choice, or there's not enough innovation in the way we uh, allocate money within our district. Um, you know, that is a, those are all, in my opinion, distractions from a fundamental issue. And, and again, just to, you know, I think it cuts across all of our public services, right? We just, we have too low of a tax take in the state. I was horrified to see a Republican proposal to cut taxes on wealthy seniors. That was fun. <laughs> Keep them from moving to Florida or something. Uh, Major problem, uh, right? Yeah. Let's use the $8 billion. Uh, some of that $8 billion, you don't have to use it all, but some of it to, to fill this gap. Uh, so you, you mentioned you were an ESP at the Wedge, the Wedge's former Jefferson School, now Ella Baker. When when does that name change happen? Has it already happened? Oh, good question. I'm not sure we're in it officially. I think the Jefferson is still out on the the front, but I think Ella Baker is what's being used. So I think we're in the middle of that process. Because people started using the name. I'm like, I hadn't heard. I nobody told me. It's in my neighborhood. Let's talk about middle-class white parents uh, in, in the wedge specifically, because I vote at Jefferson School, and so I have occasion to either walk past when school is in session on a daily basis, or when I go in to vote, I will see the kids. And you don't really see any white children in that school. 
and it's the wedge is i think 80 plus percent white it's i mean it's a fairly it's right next to whittier there's some diversity here in this area one reason is there's not a lot of children in the neighborhood it's uh there's a lot of renters but why don't white people send their kids to the neighborhood school i know that's a big philosophical question to throw at you but uh, that's a problem right there you should send your kids to Ella Baker to, to the former Jefferson school. Right. Am I wrong about that? Why, why are parents not sending their kids there? Well, I, I guess what I'll say is I would hope everyone who, who lives in the attendance area would send their kid to their neighborhood school. Um, you know, I, I think we are in this together. We live in a multiracial democracy and we have to, uh, have each other's backs. And I think if you, I think there's a, look, I mean, we just went through a municipal election where white fear was the uh, dominant theme of this election, right? All of the, the, all the crime and safety, we're about to head into a statewide election where white fear is going to be used by um, interest very cynically uh, to drive particular election results. Well, that same white fear, certainly in a system of school choice in which, you know, the choice is yours. You, you know, if you can get your kid to a school, you can in Minnesota, you can basically go anywhere. Um, you know, we've seen some of that in the news coverage. The New York Times did a big piece following the comprehensive district design where, um, you know, you had a family who, you know, cited the lack of a Japanese program at North High for the reason not to attend that school and ended up sending their kids to Minnetonka. Um, you know, so our state legislature has really created a system uh, that enables uh, segregation. Um, I think that is, you know, a, a, a big problem. I, when I worked there, you know, we were, um, I want to say our students were something like 98% qualified for free and reduced lunch. Um, you know, how many blocks from the, the most expensive homes in, in the state of Minnesota? Right. Um, you know, so I think there's you know, so I think it's a good question, right? I mean, racism is real, whether or not people, you know, implicitly or explicitly, you know, uh, uh, demonstrate that. I mean, I think that's a real thing that we, you know, have to contend with and that we as a society need to deal with. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, part of part of the issue. Um, you know, in schools are always, obviously, because of, of um, you know, the nature of what we do, you know, working with, with people's children, uh, folks are, are very highly, highly attuned to, to what's going on. And so, uh, you know, I'll share a story with you. A friend of mine was um, talking to a good friend of his who lived in the neighborhood and it was school, you know, the time where folks get their, their um, school cards and, and get to choose. And, you know, there are all these resources that are available where you can rate schools and you can see what test scores are or ratings are or, Various things, you know, we we have folks who very much believe in school choice, who have created uh, lots of resources to help people figure out how to not go to their neighborhood school. Right. So there, you know, there's a there's an interest group certainly who is very vested in school choice, and and they spend a lot of money, um, you know, pursuing that agenda. People are so competitive, and we've got this like shopping mentality. I got to shop around, make sure I get the best deal for my kid. I don't know. <clears throat> seems counterproductive. So one one of the issues bubbling up around the the uh the strike 
conversation is how how do you make sure teachers of color aren't lost? There's this last hired, first fired. Uh, a lot of probationary teachers are, are more teachers of color. What is the solution to making sure no matter what happens that we we don't have a less diverse group of teachers than we had before? Yeah, so I think that's a it's a great question. So I, you know those those teachers of color who are not tenured, um, they don't have seniority protections, and within the first three years, the district is able to choose who is let go. Um, you know, the, the teachers uh, have a, a, a memorandum of agreement on the table they've proposed uh, to um, to basically uh, you know say if we have. Teachers of color, we, we want to uh, figure out how to exempt them from seniority-based layoff because we share the value of, of making sure that we have teachers who look like our kids. Um, you know, I, I think part of this discussion, however, has been really missed in that we actually have a, a, a real crisis in, in um, you know, in termination and, and uh, teacher evaluation and, and some things that you know, we see black teachers, for example, um, terminated at a much higher, uh, fired or uh, by the district at a much higher rate than their white colleagues. Um, this is, you know, the layoff is a portion of it, but retention is a big part of it. So what is it that we're doing um, to address the retention problem uh, is also an important part. And part of that is getting at the evaluation system. There's a problem with what's called domain four, which is, uh, you know, labeled professionalism. And so it's very arbitrary and, and um, has been identified by teachers union as being a problem with how, um, you know, teachers are, are evaluated. So what kind of implicit bias or explicit bias uh, is, you know, contributing to that. So I, I think there's a lot that we need to get at. I think that, um, you know, the, the teachers have put a memorandum of agreement on the table that was written by a group of teachers of color uh, that is, uh, I think, a, a good step in the right direction that's going to, um, you know, help with that. But again, um, why are we talking about layoffs in a state with an $8 billion surplus in schools that are underfunded? That's a real critical problem that we have that we've got to get to. Do you mind if I ask you a question uh, whose inspiration came from Reddit? I was I was browsing Reddit. Uh, right. There was a thread about this issue, and most mostly supportive of the union on Reddit. I'll report. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been All on right. Reddit. No, you've got great to hear. Reddit is in support, but there was there was one person who, and here's my question: You get summers off, right? You get summers off. You've got all these demands, and you you get summers off. <laughs> What, what is your answer? I, I think you have a really good answer to that. What, what's your answer to that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, not an uncommon point that's made. I guess what I would say is that our, so I'll, I'll start with our education support professionals first. Uh, if you're making $24,000 a year working 10, 10 and a half months, um, you know, you don't get summers off. You're constantly looking for work. Uh, two thirds of our folks have second and third and fourth jobs. Um, you know, we do member surveys uh, prior to every contract that we do in the last couple uh, our last one was 66%. This one was 60%. I think actually the economic slowdown had something to do with that uh, number being a little lower. Uh, so our folks are, are um, working multiple jobs. 
Uh, and that's a problem during the school year, especially when they should be focused on our students um, and, and they're hustling to make ends meet. Um, you know, our teacher colleagues more and more also have second jobs. Um, you know, that is, that's very real. Um, what I'll say is that, you know, teacher pay continues to be well under uh, what similar professionals make with similar credentials and degrees. And so, you know, our teachers are, are not overpaid by any extent. Um, and, you know, I look, I, my wife is a teacher. I, uh, you know, see firsthand all of the work that she puts in during the school year, work that she puts in over the summer. Um, I think, you know, it's not unheard of for teachers to be taking classes, teaching summer school, um, you know, and doing all kinds of stuff um, that is job related. Right. Um, so I, I and it's also an extremely difficult job. Um, you know, it is, you know, uh, during the pandemic, my wife was on the phone after 10 p.m. speaking with families because that's when they could connect. Um, and then up early the next day to, to be ready for for kids and, and, you know, and our ESPs do the same thing, our family liaisons, our, our translators, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think that's probably, um, you know, perhaps a honest question, but I, I don't think it really it wasn't, is. It wasn't an a honest fair, question. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't an honest question. <laughs> not really a fair evaluation of, of all of what's going on. I think to One, say that folks get summers off is really... Yeah. So one thing you didn't mention explicitly there is that ESPAs are not getting paid over the summer. Uh, and I was reading this, the Sahan Journal coverage, and it's like one of the people who works as, as an ESP said, so in the fall, I'm recovering financially from the summer when I didn't get paid. And then in the in the like January and, and spring time, I'm like trying to save up so I can endure the summertime. So... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our folks, right. Uh, especially our hourly people don't get paid on non-student days. Um, our people accumulate vacation, uh, uh, which they can use on non-student contact days. Uh, to give you a perspective this year, we had 18 non-student contact days that were unpaid. Uh, it would take uh, uh, ESP about 21 years to earn enough vacation to use on each of those days, right? And, and if you're getting to that point, you're still, you know, making maybe in the mid thirties. So we're asking folks to invest 20 years to make $35,000. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a ridiculous proposition that the district uh, is putting in. And that's why we have so many vacancies and such high turnover. I think that's all I have. Have we missed anything? Uh, it's been great. I appreciate it. Um, I guess well, what that I doesn't would... mean I'm done with you, but I'm just on, <laughs> on this topic on the on the strike topic and education issues. I'm done. But if you have anything else to add on that, I want I want to ask you about like gardening. And oh yeah. Well, I mean, at least yeah. one fun question. Yeah. No, that would be great. Well, uh, let me say this. I, I want to say this, um, and uh, that we are very serious about reaching settlement. Uh, no one wants to strike. Uh, teachers, ESP. We think a deal can get done. Uh, we need the district to come with serious offers prior to a strike, though. Uh, that has to occur. Uh, we can't be sitting at the table um, debating things that they want to take out of our contract if we're going to reach agreement. Um, that's just that's not productive. Uh, I take the superintendent at his word that he wants to get this done and that he's asking his team to do that. And, and I would. Uh, ask that he take us at our word that we want to get this done 
and uh, want to avoid that as well. Okay. Well, we're done with that topic. What What are you doing for fun? You've got a you've got busy. Your days are all accounted for with this this uh, this negotiation stuff. How are you relaxing? Are you stressed out with the pandemic and and your work and just living in Minneapolis during these these troubled times? Well, I love to live in Minneapolis. I, do I love too. Whittier. Uh, we love to be able to, you know, walk to the grocery store, walk to over to Eat Street, um, you know, walk over to see friends. It's great. Uh, I, you know, I sign my emails off uh, for our union. There's power in a union. I really believe that. So I'm having a great time because our members continue to step up and and build their power and demonstrate it. And I think we're going to win. So I'm enjoying this because, uh, you know, I'm I'm we're we're leading the way in a lot of ways we're you know LA and Chicago and these uh, uh, locals who we've seen really lead the way on bargaining for the common good uh, are, are giving us shout outs and sending their solidarity and uh, hearing from other locals around the country that you know Minneapolis and St. Paul are, are giving a lot of hope for how we can turn this austerity agenda around and worker power and and I was at an event that um, council member, Robin Wansley Warbla hosted at City Hall the other day with Starbucks workers. Um, you know, it's great to see that. I mean, I I like to, you know, tell folks that one of my favorite quotes is from Clara Sparks, who says, you know, the most radical idea in America is, is the long memory. And, um, you know, those Starbucks workers are organizing a corporation that made $16 billion in profit in 2020, uh, and they're getting paid poverty wages. Um, you know, Henry Ford right? GM, the big three, you know, those were not middle-class jobs until they were unionized. And so, you know, we have a conception in this country that, you know, unions were, have seen their day or unions aren't relevant, but actually unions are the, the, the institutions that balance power. And if we're living in a new gilded age, the thing we need more of are workers organizing in unions. So this has been really energizing and, and enjoying it, but I am Looking forward to being done so we can get I, into the I asked you. I asked you a question about how you relax, and you just you wanted to talk to me more about unions. <laughs> you didn't tell me how you relax at all. What do you do for fun? Well, you know, uh, when it's when it's garden time, we're out at the Sioux line. So that's yeah. been that's been great. Um, you know, we're working long days right now, so just coming home and spending a little bit of time with my wife has been really important and that's been great. Um, but you know, you know, in summer I'm a baseball fan and I'm a politico as well. So, you know, I watch the wedge live podcast when I can. (laughs) So I I feel, I guess I'm saving you from having to listen to this. You spent all your, your 55 minutes with me instead of your wife, (laughs) but at least you don't have to watch together. Oh yeah. You have to watch yourself with her. That'll be fun. Uh, okay. I I guess we're done. Are we, you think we're done? That's great. I appreciate the invite. Okay. Uh, my guest has been Sean Layden, president of the Educational Support Professionals Chapter of the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers. This has been the Wedge Life Podcast. I'm your host, John Edwards. Thank you for listening. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. Stop, stop, stop this. Stop, 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 stop this. I, 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 I.
going on today? We're in the Wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now.